I want to ask you, start off with a question. When you were a kid, uh, I wonder if you were ever made fun of, you know, maybe somebody came up with like a sick burn like on the elementary school pl playground. Um, sure, it didn't happen to you because you guys are too cool. It happened to me quite a bit because uh, I was um, the smallest in my class. And I wonder how you deal with that kind of thing. Like when somebody kind of threatens you or criticizes you or, or makes fun of you, do you tend to um, bottle it up? Maybe in response, do you tend to blow up when somebody uh, kind of rubs you the wrong way? Or perhaps you're more like me. The, the way I tended to react was um, I would just not know how to react at all. I'd just be paralyzed. And then, you know, like somebody makes fun of you, then, then you don't, I don't say anything, I don't do anything, and you just kind of stand there, and then you go home, and then you stew on it, right? You start thinking about all the thi that, the, the, that thing that that person said or did to you, and then hours later, maybe you're in bed. I should have said this. That would have been a really good comeback, or I should have done that. And so in my mind, like hours later, I come up with this really awesome comeback. You know, take that, dude, or this elaborate kind of scheme to get back at that person in my head. But it's just fantasy. It's not reality, right? Um, when we feel threatened by other people, there's a tendency for us to react in one of three, three ways. And you're familiar with this, right? Uh, sometimes we fight. We'll repay evil for evil. You'll, you'll throw up them fists and, and, and take it out on that person, and maybe in an ungodly way. Secondly, we respond with fright. Um, that's kind of like what you saw with me. You get intimidated and paralyzed by the moment, and you don't know what to do. And then later, you just kind of stew on it and figure, try to figure out, what would I have done that would have been, ooh, that would have been such a sick comeback? Or you respond with flight, which is somebody maybe insults you or hurts you or threatens you, and you just ignore it, right? You just kind of uh, don't make eye contact, or you run from it. What if there's a better alternative? Instead of responding with uh, fight, flight, or fright, that we could respond in faith in some way. Let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're in this series called Restore. How do you experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what is broken in our lives and in our world? And that when God does the rebuilding and the restoration, it doesn't, he doesn't simply replace broken down things with more broken down things. But when God builds it, he builds something new, something better. And we saw in chapters 1 to 3 that God gave Nehemiah this conviction for the suffering city in need of a savior. And so with prayer and planning and preparation, he has moved from aspiration to implementation. He casts this vision to move the people of God from the crowd to a team for the work of rebuilding both the physical and the spiritual walls of families and communities together to the glory of God, for the good of all. And along the way, we remember way back in chapter 2 that he, he met critics. And now these critics are moving from potential distractions to aggressive actions against the people of God. And so the question is, how do worshipers and followers of God react to those kind of threats? And the big idea that we're going to see in the passage this morning is that we are to respond to threats against God's people and God's work with both prayer and practical protection. Now, that's very simple, but what does that actually mean and what does that actually look like in the passage this morning? Let's read from Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice, make sacrifices actually 
Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. This is Nehemiah speaking now, thinking, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So in verse 1, uh, the Jewish people, they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and it's going really well. And then we're reintroduced to our old friend, Sanballat. You remember him from chapter 2, verse 10. He is uh, not a Jewish person. He is a Samarian. He's from uh, a Samaritan, excuse me. He's from Samaria. And if you remember, historically, Samaria was once the northern kingdom of Israel before it was conquered, and the people uh, were assimilated and intermarried with other cultures and other religions. And so, as a Samaritan, he doesn't want the return of God's people. He doesn't want the rebuilding of God's city. And so he tries to halt the construction at the beginning of chapter 2 through political machinations. But he fails. And so now he is enraged, it says in verse 1. And so let me ask you, what do you think people do when they can't win an argument with reasons or rules? They start to resort to insults, right? Name-calling and, and trying to tear people down. So in verse 2, Sanballat, he holds a make Samaria great again rally with the Samaritan armies and, and, and mob. And the whole purpose isn't for the, their people. They're there in earshot of the Jewish people to, to insult them and intimidate them. Look at these Jewish people. They are incompetent. They are under-resourced. Uh, they are, it's going to take more than their sacrifices, their worship, and their weakness to be able to restore these walls. And he's joined in verse 2 by his sidekick. We also met in chapter 2, uh, Tobiah, the Ammonite, who chimes in with his own sick burn, right? He says, you know, your workmanship and your wall are so weak that if a little fox climbs up on it, it'll crumble. Ooh, burn, right? Pretty sick burn from him. And so how do the Jewish people react to this type of mocking? In verses 4 and, four and 5, instead of resorting to your mama jokes or, or maybe making a response video on YouTube. And instead, they respond to their critics by turning to God in prayer for reversal first. That's that next slide, Kevin. And so uh, what, is it, what do I mean by that? Um, that they are, as, they, as they respond to these critics by turning to God in prayer for reversal, I want you to notice how they pray or how Nehemiah prays. The Jewish people are turning to God. We're rebuilding, but our enemies are ridiculing. We're obeying you, Lord, but they are provoking you, Lord. And so what you see happening is they're not praying for revenge, but they're praying for reversal, to reverse the enemies cursing upon them, to turn their taunts and their sins back on them. And so theologically, what we call these are impractatory prayers. Uh, you get examples of that in Psalm 69 or Psalm 109, where God's people, as they're being taunted or ridiculed or mocked, they are calling and crying out for God's justice against injustice being done to them. That whatever injustice is being uh, poured out on them, insults and injury is turned back on them, turned back on the, their critics. And so I think about it this way. Uh, Friday afternoon, this past Friday, uh, my uh, daughter Violet is, uh, joined my son at an elementary school this year as a kindergartner, and I got a call from the vice principal while I was here at, at the church office. 
I was like, oh no, whenever I get to call, it's always, it's always uh, one of my kids more than the other, and it's usually something wrong that they've done. And so the vice principal w- was telling me, you know what, uh, I have your daughter Violet here in my office. I was like, oh, Lord Jesus, please don't let her have done it. Uh, but it was fine. Like, well, actually, it wasn't fine. But Violet claims that she is sick and that she has a runny nose and needs to be, uh, do you want us to send her home? And uh, this would be particularly terrible for us. I mean, if she's really sick, of course, we want her to come home. But if she's not, uh, the vice principal explained, you'd have to go through all these protocols to make, before you can, she can return to school, like COVID testing, this, that, and the other, and get doctors know it's going to be a little bit of a pain for you. I'm not sure she's really sick. <laughs> and so she's like, would you like to speak with her? I said, sure, put her on the phone. And so I'm sitting there, I'm on speakerphone with the vice principal and my daughter. Um, Honey, do you have a fever? No, the vice principal took my temperature. Uh, do you have a headache? No. Do you have a tummy ache? No. Well, when did you start having this runny nose? Uh, when I got into a fight with this other girl who took my hula hoop, and then she started calling me names. And so my nose started running because I was crying and crying and crying, and I just want to come home. And so, you know, we had to, so I had to talk with the vice principal. I don't think she's sick. She's like, I know. She's just, she's just upset, and that's why her nose is running. And so afterwards, when I picked her up from school later, uh, she stayed at school. Uh, we had a talk, and I, uh, sim- to make a long story short, I simplified uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 19. And I was telling uh, my, my kindergartner, um, you know what God says? He says, he says, he calls us beloved. Beloved, um, don't avenge yourself. Um, uh, leave, leave it to God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, uh, I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, what do you think that means? And so, of, of course, I simplified the words a little bit for her, uh, but she was able to think about think about it, and as we talked about it a little bit after school, uh, she said, I think what that means is that I shouldn't call this girl, na- you know, call her names back, and that I let God spank her. I was like, kind of. That's not quite, well, yeah, ki- close enough, right? <laughs> but, honey, next time that someone makes fun of you, I think what I'd like you to do is to pray, to ask God to turn it around, turn this situation around, to give maybe you a, a heart hug because you're feeling sad and to give them maybe a heart change and that he can do that instead of you uh, calling names back, instead of you punching or kicking, which may, have, may or may not have happened this school year. I'm, I cannot confirm or deny. But you know God, that God is your heavenly father. He is your heavenly defender. So let him turn it around. Maybe come to him first. And so I want to ask you when uh, someone is criticizing you, maybe I want you to th- even maybe think about it in your mind right now. Is there someone that you can picture who's kind of a harsh critic towards you? Or maybe they're criticizing the work and the will of God in your life or in your ministry as you're trying to follow Jesus. Now, on the one hand, we want to be humble and teachable as we receive feedback, even if somebody is mean-spirited, just to see if maybe there is something that might be true that we need to hear because we all have blind spots at, time, at times, so we need to receive, be open to feedback. But on the other hand, there are times that people are just hurling insults and there's no insight to gain. There's only a pain that's being inflicted. And the question is, do you trust a righteous and just God who is both your creator and your defender? To be the one, to, as we turn to him, that he turns it around, he turns around your humiliation into his exaltation. He turns around their insulting into his humbling for them. And I wonder for you, do you make prayer your first response or your last resort? As you're being insulted, as you're being uh, offended, would you turn to Jesus first before you open your mouth and maybe say something you can't take back? Now that sounds very spiritual, but 
What about when those threats go from just being offensive to being abusive? Let's read on uh, verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and, and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Let's stop right there. So in verse 6, by faith, uh, the people of Judah keep building this wall. They're emboldened by their prayers. They work even harder, and they manage to close all of the gaps and and build it up halfway, the entire wall around the city. Verse 7, when uh, they hear that the Jewish people are continuing instead of cowering, the critics are furious, and the situation turns dangerous. And so a coalition forms with Sanballat and the Samarians uh, in the north. Remember, Samaria is north of Judah. And then Tobiah and the Ammonites from the east, the Arabians that come from the south, and the Ashdodites from the west. So geographically, you now know where all these groups are coming from. So suddenly you get this picture that it's not just a few internet trolls like in chapter 2, but Judah is surrounded by enemies. And in verse 8, they move from insults to aggression as they make this pact together that we're going to attack Jerusalem. And uh, we're going to do this to demoralize the people of God and to destroy the work of God. And so Nehemiah gets wind of this plot, and how does he respond in verse 9? We prayed. Not just him, he gathers the leaders and the people of God to pray together for God's protection, and then they also set up guard duty around the clock, around the wall. So, is their response spiritual or practical? It's both, right? It's biblical. It's not either or, it's both and. And so what we see in this passage is that we respond to escalating aggression by both praying and protecting. That when we trust God's sovereignty, that doesn't mean that we neglect our human responsibility to do God's work and to defend God's work of repairing, rebuilding, and restoring his people and his glory. Now, I need you to hear me this. It doesn't mean you pick a fight. We don't start fights, we don't pick fights, we don't purposely try to hurt and abuse people. We worship God, we work humbly and faithfully, we live out his purposes, we live out his peace with other people, Romans 12, 18 tells us. We do not take revenge, Romans 12, verse 19. We love and serve and bless our enemies, Romans 12, verse 20. But when the work and people of God are threatened, we both pray and we protect trusting God in both of those things. Well, that doesn't sound very Christian or very kind. (laughs) Doesn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies? You can love and bless and forgive your enemy, but the gospel does not ignore sin. It calls it what it is. And so, here's the key. We don't repay evil for evil. That means we're not purposely abusive and harmful. We don't repay evil for evil, but we do stop it and we prevent it from harming others. And so uh, late Tuesday night, there was a uh, loud banging on our street side door and then uh, someone came around and started banging on our front door and it scared several of my family members. 
And this was pretty late, past 10 p.m. on Tuesday night. And so what I was not thinking was, well, I should show Jesus' grace to this threatening stranger by opening all the doors and all the windows of my house, uh, all the doors to my kids' rooms where they're sleeping, and just let them come in and do whatever they want to this place and to the people within it. That's not grace. That's folly. And so I love my wife. I love my two girls. I love my two boys. And they are my God-given responsibility to keep them safe. So how do I handle that situation? I pray, Jesus, please protect my wife and children. And then I grab a baseball bat before I answer the door. Now, I'm not advocating violence in any way, but what I am saying is I'm not looking for trouble. I'm not looking to hurt anyone, but I will not let anyone hurt my family because it is my responsibility. It is my calling to protect them. Do you know that too often that we respond to threats out of folly and not grace? That a lot of times we have poor boundaries, and so we invite and ignore toxic threats, toxic people, toxic sins and situations into the walls of our home, into the walls of our church and our cities when we are to call upon God, and we're also called by him to protect others. So there's times that Jesus will call you and I as followers to endure persecution and suffering, to lay down our rights and our lives for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. But when people get aggressive and abusive and oppressive against the ministry of Christ or the family of Christ, we step in to defend them in prayer and the practical protection of God's people and his work. We place our complete trust in God's presence and power, but we also have locks on the door at our church. We also have an alarm system for our church. We have safety and security protocols for our kids' ministry so that a random stranger can't just walk up into the kids' room and take your kid out of Sunday school. We as a church intervene when there are abusive situations in people's families and homes. We as a church take a stand against injustices in our world and in our society by praying because we honor God and by protecting because we honor God. So what do we do when these external threats, though, they start to, instead of being just something outside and external to us, start to burrow down into uh, internal discouragement in us, in our hearts? Let's look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come amongst them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans, that's by their families, uh, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. In verse 10, the people are diligently and faithfully and sacrificially working on this wall still. But the threat of enemies is starting to burrow into their hearts, 
Do you hear their words? We're too weak. The rubbish is too much. We can't rebuild it by ourselves. Do you hear what they're saying? Did you notice that they are echoing the exact same poisonous propaganda that Sanballat was spewing in verse 2? These feeble Jews, they're weak. There's too much rubble. They can't rebuild it by themselves. You see, they are starting to believe this insidious discouragement about themselves and their situation, and they're being intimidated by the threats. And so we hear them in verse 11. They have heard the propaganda of their enemies, that the, the, the rumblings that, that uh, the, this coalition have been saying, that we're not going to see them coming until they infiltrate the city, till they execute the people, till they extinguish the work of God. And it's interesting. It's not just the people working on the wall. You see in verse 12 that fear is contagious. It's spread to their friends and family. It says that the people, uh, their friends and family who are near those who are working on the wall, they keep coming to the wall 10 times. They say, it's too dangerous. You need to come home. You shouldn't be doing that. Don't serve in that ministry. Don't go on that missions trip. Don't do that thing for God. Don't stand up against that injustice. Everyone is discouraged. All of God's people want to give in and give up. So what do they do? God inspires a brilliant response, starting in verse 13. Again, Nehemiah sets up the guards, and this time what they do is they, they station them in strategic places. They cover all the lowest parts of the wall, the most vulnerable spots. But that's actually not the clever part of this plan. You see, instead of being discouraged by your family and friends, all these family and friends are coming to the wall. You need to come home. It's too dangerous. Instead of being discouraged by family and friends, this plan helps them to be encouraged by their family and friends because what they're doing is they're arming all their family and friends and neighbors and stationing them by their clans uh, to protect the walls and the workers. I want you to think about this. The, people, the very people who were telling you how scared they, they are and they want you to come home are the very ones who are going to be defending you. How much of a boost would that give you if you were the one building the walls and then you see your dad, your brother, your son, people you know and love and trust to vigilantly and sacrificially stand guard over you. People you know and trust will have your back. And this plan gets even better. You see in verse 14, Nehemiah declares, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember who's on your side. Remember the mighty things that he has done for us. It would be like him declaring, remember the same God who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea. Remember the same God who delivered us into the promised land and parted the Jordan River. Remember this God who delivered us from Babylonian captivity, captivity and parted all the obstacles so that we could return to Jerusalem and, re and rebuild the walls of our homes and our hearts for the glory of God and the good of all. It'd be like Nehemiah saying to us, remember the God who defends us and delivers us from sin and death by the blood of Christ and then covers us in the armor of God that our faith and our salvation and the gospel protect us, Ephesians chapter 6. Remember this God. He is great. He is awesome, Nehemiah says. He is your father. He is your defender. And then he concludes with, when you know how great this God is, that he cares for you, that he fights for you, then you won't be afraid for your family and for your friends in your homes. Instead, you'll fight for that. So when people feel like giving up, you know, that happens, 
I'm sure in, if you're working on a project for school or, or maybe a project at work, when people feel like giving up, they're discouraged. The answer isn't simply to work around them or to do the work for them. The answer is that we respond to the, those who are discouraged by arming them with praise for our mighty God and protection for one another. We arm them. You see, when the people of God are discouraged, what do they, what do they need? They need to be encouraged. They need to be empowered and equipped. And in Nehemiah does both, encouraging them and equipping them. Now, more than likely, you will not have to pick up a sword for any reason. But you do have an enemy, and his name is Satan. And in the Bible, that word, that name, Satan, literally means adversary. That's what his name means. It means that he is committed to opposing God and his glory, and his worship, and his people. He may manipulate and use and confuse other people to do his dirty work, to thwart the purposes and the people of God, but he is the one who is your true enemy. Now, instead of putting a physical sword into your hands, what God does in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, is that Jesus gives you what's called the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. It is the truth and the life that God gives you through his word to cut through the lies and the fears that Satan uses to distract and defeat God's people. And your job is to wield it, to use it to cut through the discouragement of other people. So, when someone says to you, I am so tired and I'm too busy and I'm too weak to experience restoration in my own life or to be involved in the restoration of other people's lives, then you defend them and you encourage them with the sword of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for, the, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Part of the sword of the Spirit. We have a God who repairs and rebuilds and restores. And so we need to remind people that our God is mighty. And, that he, and then we need to fight for them with the word of God to cut through the lies. And so I want to ask you, who is that person in your life this morning who is drowning in discouragement, who could use some encouragement about a great and awesome God and also to receive truth and life from his word? Perhaps it is time for you to pick up your sword. What kind of threat are you experiencing in your life lately? Insulting criticism, violent aggression, or perhaps it's just internal discouragement. There's too much wreckage. There's too much rubble in my marriage. There's too much rubble in my work. There's too much wreckage in my community. How will I ever experience Jesus' restoration in my family or in my city? And how do people tend to respond? By bottling it up, by blowing up, by freezing up. And so instead of the way of fight, fright, or flight, what if you tried faith today? Respond to threats against God's purposes and God's people with both prayer and protection. What is that going to look like in your life today? And so during this next song, I want to invite you to spend some time doing exactly what Nehemiah said, 
and praying proactively. Invite a mighty God to turn those insults against you around, to empower you to defend his will and his work, to encourage others with his sword and his word, to, verse 14, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes to the glory of God and the good of others. Heavenly Father, as we take a quiet moment, we don't simply wait to receive prayer from a pastor, but we pray. We all know what it's like to be insulted, to be threatened, to feel discouraged. Would you turn those threats around in our hearts, in our lives, in our situations? Would you help us to bring before you any of the pain or the anger that we feel from threats in our lives? Would you give us courage to respond, to stand up, to defend, and to do so with grace and truth? Would you bring to mind specific instances that we need to bring before you this morning? In Jesus' name.